The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, you hear some oil and gas companies or some folks who support fossil fuels saying, this means we need to drill more. This means we need to, you know, open more gas uh, shale opportunities. And and that's the wrong answer, right? That will just prolong the challenges in the future. And, and it wouldn't even help us in this moment because those things take time to get online as well. So I think doubling down on, on green energy and, and really pushing forward on that is, is a security imperative because at a certain point, we won't be able to adapt or build resilience to the climate shocks if we allow them to get so, so bad. And, and we don't wanna to get to that place. I'm Natalie Orpet, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 6th, 2022. In the last few weeks, much has been said about how energy issues are playing into Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. It's especially coming up in the context of sanctions regimes against Russia, whose economy relies so heavily on energy production. But the war has serious implications for energy security more broadly. I sat down with Aaron Zakorsky, director of the Center for Climate and Security, to talk about how the events in Ukraine are both exposing and exacerbating threats to energy security, as well as to what's known as climate security. We discussed the effect of European dependence on Russian oil and gas, how ecological damage is causing both immediate crises and long-term threats, and why the conflict is causing food insecurity at a global scale. And we talked about what, if anything, can be done about it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, April 6th. How Russia's war in Ukraine affects energy and climate security. So Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the conflict that's still going on have obviously been at the center of attention of a lot of news coverage, a lot of analysis. And I want to talk about two components of that with you. One is pretty well covered and discussed, but there's a lot more to say, and that is energy security. And the second is one that I think is not as well discussed, which I also want to get to, and that is what you've termed climate security. So just to get started, let's talk about energy security. Like I said, I think that's a little bit more familiar to people. So there's been a lot of discussion about how European dependence on Russian oil and gas is influencing the global response to Russia's aggression, and in particular, whether it's affecting the ability of sanctions to work or Europeans' willingness to impose meaningful sanctions. Can you just talk us through that dynamic? So yeah, thanks. Thanks, Natalie. You know, in, in 2021, the European Union imported about 45% of its, its natural gas from Russia. And so as Europe has reacted to the crisis in Ukraine and pushed for sanctions on Russia, the question of energy has been a sticking point for many countries. There is clear desire and benefit to get away from Russian oil and gas, but the alternatives I think, are a little bit challenging, particularly in the short term for Europe. And so while you've seen a renewed push for renewable energy, right, to build resilience in, in green energy technologies so that they're not beholden to Russia, it's not a switch you can just flip overnight. 
and so in the in the short term, the question is, okay, how do we how do we keep Europeans warm next winter, right, and not have have crazy uh, fuel prices, but still be able to push against Russia, and that's where the challenge has come in. But I will say, I think the fact that Europe and the European Union in their plans thus far have pushed so heavily towards redoubling efforts to green energy and going faster than, than they planned previously has shown that, that this moment has really been clarifying, frankly, that it's not just about doing what's right for the environment and, and preventing all of those risks associated with climate change, but it's also about not being beholden to folks like Putin for energy security in Europe. Yeah. And I do want to come back to exactly what Europe is doing on that scope. But I'm wondering also if you can talk a little bit more about why it is the case that you can't just flip a switch and, you know, just find an alternative source for oil and gas as a way to implement these sanctions really effectively. Why is it more complicated than just finding a new supplier? Sure. I mean, some of it is the kind of gas that, that Russia can supply and how it gets to European countries. And other gas elsewhere in the world was already destined for, for, for other locations, right? So to bring that into Europe, you have to not only convince the, the producers to do it, but you have to find a way to get it in. If it's liquidified natural gas, LNG, uh, you need the right terminals and the right infrastructure. And that infrastructure takes time to build. And they frankly, Europe hasn't been building it. And I think rightly, frankly, because they are planning to move to clean energy and to transition. So it's not just, you know, switching what's in the pipeline, but where the pipeline might be and, and how that, that energy comes in. And another, another challenge is, you know, you don't want to trade bad for worse as, as well. And, and who is the supplier and what other foreign policy concerns might Europe or, frankly, the United States, as it has cut off Russian oil and gas, have with, say, going to Venezuela and asking them for oil, in that case, not gas, right? There are other foreign policy um, challenges around uh, democracy and rule of law at play there. And and so there are trade-offs, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes sense. And so to the extent that Europeans in particular have tried to cut back now, presently, on oil and gas, is that really having an impact on Europeans in a day-to-day sense? Well, I think what we've seen from from European leaders is kind of a twofold plan. One is on conservation of energy, right? And the International Energy Association actually released a a ten point plan a few weeks ago that laid out a roadmap for how Europe could uh, wean itself off Russian oil and gas. And it included things like turning down the thermostat one degree or lowering the speed limit in cities, letting folks work from home a few days a week. So, so that side is just about conserving, conserving the fuel that you do already have. And then it is looking for alternative suppliers. The U.S. has, has committed to providing uh, as much gas as it possibly can to Europe to help them weather the moment. I think the the key there is though that you don't, my concern is that you don't lock in then dependence on, on other gas supplies and, and in, invest in that infrastructure that I was talking about for the long term that then makes it even harder to move to green energy. But I think what I've seen from European leaders thus far is that at least rhetorically and in their plans, they've really sped up their commitment to clean energy. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. I I know that the European Union has actually taken up the issue through specific proposal. And I think some of the measures you've you've talked about that are short term are being unrolled as at present, but there's also the the much bigger questions that require a lot of investment, like rebuilding the infrastructure, as you mentioned. So can you tell us what exactly is in that plan in particular, or sort of more generally, what is in the works or under discussion for increasing this commitment to transition quickly to clean energy as an alternative? Sure. I think I can speak generally to that. I think what's in the plans is further investment in electrification, Right. There's investment in heat pumps, for example, which are a tool for households to heat and cool their homes with electricity and, and not rely on, on gas. Uh, there's discussions around expanding wind power. Uh, there's also some discussions around nuclear 
and what that role should be in in clean energy mixes. So it's actually forcing, in some cases, some reconsideration, I think, of of policies around nuclear power and and how to explore there. And and I mean, this is not to say that this is all easy either. There have been great debates. You see it in the UK right now, which I think tomorrow is about to to unroll its its new energy strategy. And there's been been a lot of pushback against more wind, offshore wind, for example, there. So it isn't it isn't smooth sailing necessarily for for every country as they look to to move to clean energy. But you're seeing kind of an all hands on deck, all ideas uh, must go kind of kind of approach at this point to to come up with with solutions. And what's heartening to me is you see things. I mean, and it isn't just in the energy sphere, it's, it's across the, the security sphere in, in response to the Russian invasion is, you know, you've got Germany investing in its military, you've got, they decided not to move forward with Nord Stream 2 in Germany. I mean, these things that would have, had you asked someone six months ago, would Germany be doing that? The answer would have been no, right? But, but in this moment, in some ways, anything is possible, uh, particularly as the pressure builds to, to do more against Putin and, and stand up to him. And in that sense, how much are we seeing in terms of countries individually making decisions and implementing policies as opposed to or in addition to more regional efforts or alliances working together to address some of these issues? Sure. I think one of the uh, one of the standout developments in this moment is the is the coordination and collaboration amongst European countries, but also amongst NATO countries with the the U.S. and, and Canada, as well, and and really all singing from the the same sheet of music. Certainly, some countries, I think, when it comes to the energy piece, are in a position to move forward, uh, perhaps a bit more quickly than others. And I mentioned Germany before. I mean, I think they are one of the countries that is perhaps most challenged by the idea of moving away from from Russian oil and gas. So there there's variation there amongst different European countries. But but I think the overall goals and commitments, they're they're fairly unified on the path to how we get there may differ a bit. But from what I can see, there's good good collaboration. And do you think that that's having an impact in the sense of helping to make the case for these countries and in their collaboration with each other on other issues, you know, more traditional security issues, that they should be thinking about energy security as a core national security and mutual defense issue? I would hope so, right? And I think, I mean, this has been a pretty a pretty clarifying moment that that. I, I don't like to call it energy independence. I like to call it energy resilience, right? Being having resilient uh, systems for for energy generation is absolutely critical for Europe when you've got Russia acting so so aggressively, right? And you don't want your hands tied in dealing with Russia because you need their their oil and gas. And if it's Russia today, but that you don't want to replace Russia with another dependency somewhere else that is just as challenging, right? So building that resilience and resilience comes from green energy in many places because it is not dependent on in the same way on on global markets. Um, this isn't to say there aren't issues related to, say, critical minerals that you need for uh, a lot of clean energy technologies, and that opens a host of geopolitical issues and also resource access issues, but it's different than than the oil and gas dependencies. And I found myself recently wondering, too, if there's a role for the private sector here as well, mm. because I noticed, you know, there, there's been in a couple of different regulatory bodies, there's been a move toward requiring public companies to report information on greenhouse gas emissions. That's, so that's happening. Uh, there's a proposal in the SEC right now, the International Sustainability Standards Board, um, I believe, already put forward two proposals that would similarly require public companies to disclose climate-related risks. And there are some um, European nations, I believe, and even EU requirements that companies disclose some of this information about what aspects of their business constitute green business in their terminology. And I was thinking about this with reference to the fact that so many companies, I think by some counts over 500 companies, 
have now taken a stance and withdrawn in some respect from Russia. So I'm wondering if we can sort of combine these two things and find a role for the private sector in this. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think there absolutely is a role for the private sector. And I think working, I mean, public-private partnerships, right, to catalyze some new technologies more quickly, for example, I think would be uh, really useful in this moment. I think, you know, a commitment to innovation and and working with the EU uh, for private companies or the United States is important. I mean, I think back to this past fall at, at the COP meeting in, in Glasgow when the U.S. announced the First Movers Coalition, which is a group of private companies in the hardest to decarbonize industries like shipping and sailing and aviation, right? And these companies all agreed to make investments in decarbonization in their industries to catalyze market changes, um, working with the government on that because it is so important. And so I think there are opportunities, there are lots of opportunities to involve, I think, private companies in these conversations when we're in kind of a, a moment where we need new ideas, right? And and new ideas quickly, <laughs> generate those new ideas quickly um, to to move as, as fast as possible away from, from fossil fuels. So so yeah, I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I think you're right in that they have a they have an important role to play. Okay. So I'm I'm wondering now if you imagine that you are facing a skeptical legislator of some sort who says you know, climate change and energy security is all well and good, but we are currently facing a an immediate crisis in the form of bombs and civilian deaths and all of these tragedies. We're going to have to wait to deal with energy security. What's what's your pitch for explaining why this can't wait? Sure. I mean, the the most obvious pitch, I think, is that it's oil and gas that is funding those bombs that that Putin is dropping. Right. I mean, he his country gets its money from fossil fuels. And if we pull that rug out from under him, um, that puts a lot more pressure on him. I also think that you can't separate some of the ecological security risks and damage to Ukraine and the risks there around attacks on their their nuclear power facilities, for example, that run the risks of, of grave ecological harms that are part of part of the story. I think also, I mean, the United States has to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, right? And we're dealing with the risks in Ukraine right now, but we also just spent the past year where the Defense Department laid out all of the reasons why climate change poses security risks in the future, and none of those risks have gone away, right? So you get a you get a two for one, in my opinion, by by moving away more quickly from oil and gas. Not only do you put pressure on petro dictators like Putin, but you also then get the benefits of of minimizing climate security risks in the future. So it's they're they're not separate and it's not either or, right? You can you can do both and there are there are benefits, co-benefits. Yeah. So you just mentioned there the the next topic I wanted to dive into, which as I mentioned, I think is is not being covered as much as the energy security issue. And that is um, I think you've used the term climate security. So just to start us off, can you give a, a definition of what that means? Sure, I'd be I'd be happy to do that and actually I I will turn to Congress uh, who did it for me in the National Defense Authorization Act for the fiscal year 2020. They actually included a definition of of climate security and and what they included was the effects of climate change on the national security of the US including national security infrastructure. So think U.S. military bases and, and installations, uh, the effects of climate change on subnational, national, and regional political stability. So how climate change is shaping risks of conflict in fragile areas of the world that where the U.S. has interests, uh, say the Middle East, say Central America, say Southeast Asia. It also means the effects of climate change on the security of allies and partners of the United States. 
So if we, as the new national defense strategy is going to say, at least from the the unclassified fact sheet they have released, if allies and partners are one of America's great strengths, right, and one of our key comparative advantages when competing with China, if those allies and partners face insecurity due to climate, right, if climate change, extreme storms, droughts, desertification is affecting their ability to uh, operate as countries, if it's affecting their own security, then they can't partner with us in in our competition with others. And then finally, what, what Congress said is that climate security is when climate change impacts ongoing political violence, right, in terrorist groups, insurgencies, rebellions, uh, potentially civil wars, interstate wars, all of the ways in which climate change shapes those risks as well. So really, I, I think of climate security as, as climate change having an impact on on not only the backdrop against which all other national security risks unfold, but also then posing direct risks itself to the United States' ability to manage those risks abroad, right? Either by hurting our infrastructure directly, hurting our allies and partners' infrastructure, or just um, interrupting our our ability to to operate on the on the world stage. That was a long answer, but I think I, but part of the reason it's a long answer is because it has so many different aspects, right? I mean the the initial definition that that folks have used for a few decades now was to think of climate change as a quote threat multiplier, right? That it exacerbates existing threats by straining food or water resources, for example. But I think. It's broader than that now, and I think there's a recognition that it's not only a threat multiplier, but it's also just this this factor in the landscape that that's creating new threats as well. Yeah, and I think that complexity of the answer is really important because I think it's not as familiar to people, and there's too often a sense that climate change and climate security is something that is forward-looking, and I think as a result, people are more comfortable sort of putting it on the back burner when it feels like there's a more pressing issue. And, you know, we're seeing horrible images of war and we have other major national security crises. It feels like this can be put on the back burner. But I think that reconceptualization of it is, is really important to both understand how it is in the backdrop, as you said, and how it's a, it's a multiplier, as you said, but also how it's creating really imminent and immediate consequences. So I wanted to ask you about those. I know you've written a bit about the ecological security, which you mentioned earlier as well, component of this. So what are we seeing in Ukraine as a result of Russia's war there that is affecting Ukrainian ecological security? Sure. It's a good question. And I mentioned uh, one of the main concerns earlier, which is the potential impacts on on nuclear facilities in Ukraine, right? And you saw a few weeks ago at a, at a nuclear power plant where there was a, a firefight between Russian troops and the Ukrainians defending it, and a fire broke out at the plant, which was contained, thankfully, and and away from, from some of the more critical infrastructure, but it underscored the fact that there are these facilities in, in Ukraine and, and that they're being put at risk by conflict and an and invading country that doesn't appear too concerned about paying attention to those risks. And of course, I mean, war just generally creates ecological security risks by unleashing pollutants into the air, ground, and water, um, and can damage sanitation systems, contaminate water supplies, release harmful toxins from old, old buildings. I mean, there's just many ways in which the biosphere in Ukraine, the, the ecological environment within Ukraine will be damaged, is being damaged by by the ongoing conflict, which has then long-term Effects on the country's ability to recover, both economically and and sociopolitically. So there are there are multiple concerns there. But I would say the one that frankly keeps me up at night is around the the nuclear facilities. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, and, and just to drill down that even more, I mean, I think the the fact is that there are the really horrifying but admittedly likely more long-term issues like 
what's happening to nuclear facilities and what that will mean for radiation over time. But there's also, as you said, the pollutants that are that are infecting water and making it so that there, there are places in Ukraine where people do not have access to clean drinking water, which is an immediate emergency in the same way that weapons are. And I, I think that that's an aspect of ecological security that is not understood as well, that there, there are things happening right this very minute to the ecology of the country that are creating security risks. I think you're you're exactly right in terms of just the immediacy of of the threat and and the challenges it poses. And are there any impacts to all of this for Russia's climate security? Sure. So, you know, it's really interesting. Back in January, President Biden was giving a press conference on the potential for a Russian invasion. And, and it, it was a, almost a throwaway line, but but he noted that one of the challenges that Vladimir Putin was facing was, quote, a burning tundra that will not freeze again naturally. And the president referred to this kind of saying, you know, you got to pay attention to the problems in your own backyard. <laughs> Why aren't you dealing with those? And it's important, I think, to remember that, that Russia itself faces, has real climate security vulnerabilities temperatures in Russia are increasing faster than the average speeds of global warming. And permafrost melt in the the northern part of the country is hugely damaging for Russia itself um, because it it messes with the foundations of structures. It messes with uh, energy infrastructure up there. It's led to uh, these fires that, that President Biden recognized. And, and though often the, the melting of the Arctic, another key issue for Russia, is sometimes seen or framed as a benefit for Russia, something that Russia is trying to take advantage of because they, then they can control access to resources in the Arctic or control shipping and commercial lanes there. It also poses a real threat to Russia because it removes a natural defense, right? When you have miles of, of frozen ice <laughs> on your northern border, that's a real easy border to defend. But when that, that ice melts, it allows the potential uh, for other ships to get closer from other countries. And, and Russia has been militarizing that border then in response to what their perception is of a threat. So so Russia itself, like I said, has has these climate security vulnerabilities and real impacts on the population and on the resources available to to the country. And do you think those pre-existing Russian vulnerabilities are being exacerbated by what's happening in Ukraine or or might they have even been part of the cause of the war in the first place? It's a good question and I don't really know the answer to the latter part of that. I mean, I it's it's hard to know. I certainly think it's the war in in Ukraine and now the subsequent sanctions on Russia are certainly a drain on the country's resources and capacity that it has to manage these other risks, right? It's a trade-off for them. I also think one of the the damaging things we've seen due to the conflict is that it's interrupted scientific cooperation around the Arctic and the the work of the Arctic Council, as the other members of the Arctic Council have rightly said they will not participate as long as Russia is behaving in this way. Russia actually is the chair of the Arctic Council uh, right now and was supposed to hold a meeting in Moscow this year of the council. Uh, so that interruption is is not good for Russia, I don't think, but it's not good for any Arctic country, frankly, as you try they try and understand what's what's happening up there. Can you just uh, talk a little bit about what the Arctic Council does and uh, <laughs> its sort of broader implications for national and international security? Sure. So the Arctic Council is a body of all of the countries around the Arctic that is primarily focused on scientific collaboration and cooperation and has purposefully left security out of of the discussions, right? But it's it's a group to to bring together scientists, to bring together policymakers uh, from the Arctic countries to discuss what should be done in the region and better understand what's happening in the region as as the ice melts. And it has traditionally been able to stay out of of geopolitics and even after the 2014 invasion by by Russia 
of of Crimea, the Arctic Council was able to continue its work, but now, uh, and and I said like rightly so, ha- the work has been has been interrupted. I mean the and obviously the the work that they do, even if what they are doing is separate from security and unrelated to geopolitics, obviously the information that they're able to produce feeds into the policymaking process in the countries that do have to think about things from a security perspective. So that does strike me as a really important, you know, maybe understood to be tertiary effect, but a, an important one nonetheless. Yeah. Okay. I think another piece of of climate security, as it's termed, that is getting more attention of late, but I think really deserves some delving into is related to food security. Mm-hmm. So I think it was lesser known, at least in the United States, that Russia and Ukraine are both enormous suppliers of wheat and corn and barley, and that Russia is a huge supplier of fertilizers, which impacts crops all around the world. But I, I think it's it's worth getting into what this conflict is doing in terms of its full ripple effects. So we know that there's wheat and corn and barley and other crops that are usually being exported from those countries that are currently not being exported. But it's broader than that. So can you talk a little bit about how all of this is having an effect on food security? You know, food security globally was already in a challenging spot prior to this invasion, right? Because of climate change, because of COVID, because of conflict, the three C's, right? Food security had gone down significantly in in many parts of the globe in recent years, in sub-Saharan Africa and parts of the Middle East. It's been a real concern. When you add then the shock of the loss of grain from Ukraine and from Russia and, and fertilizer, as you mentioned, it's it's shocking an already weak and fragile system, if you will, right, that can't absorb that shock that is already kind of on life support. And and this shock will 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 just make that that much worse. I mean, you look at countries like Egypt that gets of the vet has gotten the vast majority of its wheat for government subsidized bread from Ukraine and Russia, or Lebanon, which has still reeling from the port explosion in 2020 that took out some of its grain silos. They traditionally import approximately 50 to 60% of their wheat from Ukraine, right? And so it's it's a shock that that is not able to be well managed, I think. And you hear folks at the UN and elsewhere really raising the alarm. Again, it's not not any of these issues alone, but it's all of them together and how they compound one another that makes it worse. East Africa is another place now where we're looking at the potential for severe famine and risks of food insecurity not directly because of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, but that doesn't make it, (laughs) it makes it worse, right? And it it just reduces the amount of of food in the system uh, for these countries to to rely on. It also, I know there's been some concern, and I will admit this is a bit out of my area of expertise, but there's been concern that the heavy focus now on on supporting Ukrainian refugees and, and making sure they have food, which is absolutely critical, but then distracts from other places uh, where there are huge humanitarian crises as well. So it's it's a real challenge. And to talk about specifically the the impact on food, just in terms of how it comes from the ground and into our mouths. I mean, there's as we talked about the immediate products that Russia and Ukraine both supply. But I think it's interesting to sort of talk about it in the more of a cycle sense. So, you know, right now, obviously, farmers in Ukraine in particular, but also in Russia, to some extent, are not able to plant the crops. So the ones that are, you know, the the yields that is already that already exists is not being exported, but the next round is not going to be grown. And then likewise, fertilizers are not being exported, which means that crops that are being grown everywhere that receives Russian fertilizer are not going to do as well in the future, which means that, you know, prices of those crops are going to be higher. And and the fact that there are 
weaker yields and less yields of those crops also means that meat prices will be higher because those animals have less to eat. So we're looking at this lasting for a long time and likely impacting not only the um, people who are already in situations of food insecurity, but affecting the whole global market and obviously creating even more inequities in that respect. What what more should we be thinking about in that realm? Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right about the kind of cascading nature of the risk, right? And and it's not just a one time shock, but it has knock on effects that will will unfold over over potentially multiple years. An- another one I might add in there, um, just to make the picture even even a bit bleaker. But uh, research has has shown that in countries and areas where uh, individuals, especially young men, lose their their livelihoods, right? Lose their opportunities to make a living or have some kind of economic sustenance for their families. When approached then by, say, extremist groups in in those areas, the cost-benefit analysis of joining a group like that has, has changed because you don't have an alternative. So if you're looking at a place like Somalia, for example, uh, which is going through a food security crisis again, or Kenya or, or Ethiopia now with the uh, uh, challenges there, that this has effects for uh, security risks due to extremists and, and terrorism as well. And it's not a, not a direct line, but it is a, a secondary and, and a second and third order effect that can happen um, when, when the agriculture piece is, is disrupted and another thing to be concerned about. And is there anything we can do to try to improve that picture? Well, I mean, I think there are there are near-term humanitarian action and, and intervention that can help stave off the, the most severe food crises in, in some of these parts of the world. And the fact that, I mean, we, I think there has been a decent amount of, of press coverage and discussion and policy discussion about the food security uh, ripple effects of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. So if countries can take that discussion and turn it into to uh, forward-thinking interventions to to ensure food supplies in, in some of these parts of the world, I think that would be good. I think in the in the longer term, um, it is about building resilience. Right, that's that same term we talked about when we were talking about energy earlier in in the conversation. Is building states and communities' abilities to absorb these kind of shocks or at least manage them is so critical because, again, irrespective of the, the Ukraine crisis right now, the climate models show us that that food security is going to be an increasing challenge, even if you took conflict out of the picture, right? And so getting ahead of that, you know, investing in new forms of agriculture at the very local level of, you know, new seeds that are more drought resistant, right? Building local resilience. I mean, there are a lot, there are lots of people working on these. There are lots of options for this. The, the challenges, none of it happens, can happen quickly or overnight. So those are more long-term solutions, but investing in those long-term solutions now gives you more flexibility than in, in the future to be able to absorb such shocks. But in, in the near term, I think what you really need is, is coordinated humanitarian assistance and and prioritization and making sure that in the heat of what's happening in Ukraine and with the the refugee crisis there that we don't forget about these other parts of the world that are going to face food shocks as well. Yeah, I think that's such a great point and I'm actually curious your thoughts sort of stepping back to think more broadly about both climate security and energy security. You know, what are the sort of shorter term, low hanging fruit items that you would say can and should be prioritized right now, um, whether it's for things that will have an immediate impact or things that, or I guess as two separate categories, things that will have an immediate impact, even if it's not sufficient. And as a second category, the things that require investment to set a stage for better security in the medium to long term. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. I think in the I think a couple things in in the near term. And I, I have to give the Biden administration credit, you know, since day one they have put climate change front and center in their foreign policy and and you know 
every speech that's given by a senior official, every international engagement, climate change is part of the conversation and it's on the agenda, which I think is an important first step to make this a reality. I think now we're in a moment, though, where you have to follow those words up with actions. And and one thing that can happen, I think, in the near term is for the United States to fully fund commitments to climate adaptation and climate finance for these countries that are being hardest hit by, by climate hazards, even though they're the ones that emitted the least amount of greenhouse gas emissions. And I think we do that not because, uh, you know, it's it's the right thing to do, although that would be a perfectly good reason, but we do that because it's in our U.S. national security interests to make sure countries are are prepared for the things that we're talking about, that they can adapt, that they can invest. I mean, there's a the president's new budget request, I think, has upwards of $11 billion uh, in it requested for climate finance to the Green Climate Fund at the UN, to what's called the PREPARE initiative, which was announced last year at at the COP by the Biden administration, which is USAID and State Department investing in, in climate resilience abroad. I think those adaptation measures are so critical because there are climate risks, as you said at the beginning, that are already here, that are already happening, and that even if all emissions were cut tomorrow, we would still be experiencing given the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere. So we have to be, we have to help countries tackle those to prevent, you know, conflict and fragility risks that we can't, the international community can't manage. And then I think in the longer term, it is about the mitigation or cutting emissions piece so that we prevent the absolutely most devastating outcomes. You know, the the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change today just released the third of its three working group reports for its latest overall assessment of kind of where we're at on, on climate change. And this third report was all about how do we keep temperatures at 1.5 degrees or below of warming from pre-industrial times. And the conclusion of that report is, is we don't have any time to waste. We have to do it right now. And we have to, again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, use all of the tools in our toolbox to get there. And so really investing in all sorts of new technologies, deploying those technologies, moving ever more quickly away from fossil fuels. And I think making sure that in this moment with the Ukraine crisis, you know, you hear some oil and gas companies or some folks who support fossil fuels saying, this means we need to drill more. This means we need to, you know, open more gas uh, shale opportunities. And, and that's the wrong answer, right? That will just prolong the challenges uh, in the future. And, and it wouldn't even help us in this moment because it, those things take time to get online as well. So I think doubling down on, on green energy and, and really pushing forward on that is, is a security imperative because at a certain point, we won't be able to adapt or build resilience to the climate shocks if we allow them to get so, so bad. And, and we don't want to get to that place. So we have to be able to do both. We have to do, do the adaptation in the short term, and then we have to do the mitigation and emissions cutting in the long term to, to keep frankly, America and Americans safe. Yeah. So, you know, obviously not that we would have any desire to have this tragedy be in place, but it it does sound like the Russian war in Ukraine may be acting as a sort of catalyst to focus attention on the severity of the problem, on the pre-existing problems, but also the, the possibility of things worsening. And I wonder if you think that the coordination and collaboration that we've seen from many countries, not only NATO countries who are willing to stand up to Russia to some extent, and and the work that is being done by even the private sector, as I mentioned, whether that bodes well for the possibility of collaboration and cooperation on climate change issues more generally. I certainly hope so, Natalie. I think it... I. I I do think it is a is a clarifying moment in that it really sharpens I think folks understanding of why of the benefits of of moving away from from fossil fuels but I think there are still still challenges I think it's hard but 
but we can do hard things, right? And and we've done hard things in the past. So when I wake up on optimistic days, then yes, I think it is it is a good moment and, and it will move things further. I do think though, I think one key variable that I'm watching closely too, which we haven't even talked about, but is is the role of China, for example, in all of this, because they're a key player on the climate front. Um, and, and Russia is as well. So, but I do think the collaboration and coordination among Europeans and the United States is a is a good sign for things to come, hopefully. Yeah, and actually, if you if you could talk uh, briefly about China's role in all of this, I think that would be really interesting to hear as well. Uh, sure, and I mean, I don't, you know, again, we're straying a bit from my my area of expertise, but but China has has not obviously come out and forcefully condemned what what Russia has done, and in fact, perhaps could be seen to be supporting it. And I think that in tackling climate issues, you because of their role as, a, as an emitter, you need China to take action as well. I personally am of the camp that China will take action on climate because it's in its own security interest to do so, in its own national interest to do so, um, and has less to do with what the U.S. or others do or don't do in relation to that. But But you still need some level of collaboration and cooperation on the international stage, and, and China doesn't isn't helping that by by jumping in on Russia's side in this in this conflict. I think that gives us a lot to think about in terms of how the war in Ukraine is at least drawing attention to and clarifying and hopefully helping people better prioritize the need to address a lot of these issues. So thank you for talking us through all of that. Yeah, thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this podcast by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters, including our upcoming event about the criminal prosecution stemming from the January 6th Capitol attack this Friday at noon. Check out our Patreon page for details. While you're there, Look for ad-free versions of our other podcasts, including Rational Security and Chatter. You'll also find bonus content from The Aftermath, our new series on the government's response to January 6th. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening.